Welcome in, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Cats Illustrated Podcast. Um, I know it's been a while since we've done this. I think Justin did one during the season, but for those that don't know me, my name's Adam Luckett, and I joined the Cats Illustrated site back at the end of August, I believe, right before football season, and many of you may know me from the the Seven Things article I posted for each opponent and uh, some around the SEC stuff. I typed up for the site, and we'll, what we're trying to do here is start maybe a weekly or twice-weekly podcast to go up, just pretty much top, talk the topics that are going on around the Kentucky landscape. The guy that you mainly know from the site, Justin Rowland, our CEO, President Chief, is joining me today, and we're going we're gonna to talk some uh, Kentucky football, basically recap the football season, getting to some recruiting stuff and the, the coaching changes that Mark Stoops has brought up that he said – it's going to happen eventually. Justin, welcome to the pod, my man. Adam, thank you for taking the initiative and doing this. You've been an outstanding addition to the site, really helped our football coverage, and, and I'm excited to do it. So so I'm grateful to you. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me on. We'll, we'll get started here, start rocking and rolling. Basically, Justin, we'll just kind of recap the season. Um, everybody knows Kentucky finished 7-5, and five, had a really disappointing ending after it. A lot of people got excited after that Vanderbilt win. They were 7-3, and three, had two big opportunities to really pick up a statement win and really crap the bed. Georgia, they had they had a bunch of missed opportunities. And then the Louisville game, just not much of a fight, uh, it seemed like, from the, from the team or the coaching staff. So I guess just overall, what were your thoughts of the season? Um, for me, I'm kind of in the middle. I, I, don't, I wouldn't call it a successful season per se, but I wouldn't say it was a failure either. I think they did some really good things, but they did leave a lot on the table. Yeah, I think you gotta you got to kind of take the middle road here, and a nuanced take is, is in order. It could have been worse. Yes, it could have been better, but I think 7-5 and five against the modest SEC schedule is pretty much who this team was. You know, record doesn't always reflect how good a team was, but I think if you if you have a pretty good understanding of who they played this year, seven and five was about on the mark. I think some of the fan frustration was a little bit misguided, although I think there is room for frustration on some levels, and we'll talk about that if you want to talk about the fans another time. But uh, you know, overall, it wasn't a sexy team. In the first half of the season, they were they were good enough against the run. And they were good enough on special teams to kind of outlast some some questionable competition, frankly, in the first half of the season. It kind of felt like they were just running out the clock, hoping to hoping to stay on the right side of the ledger, and they did that more often than not. There were some exceptions. South Carolina game was one of their best performances of the season. South Carolina and Vanderbilt were really good, really, really good showings. But in the second half of the season against better teams, they were kind of exposed a little bit. Maybe the grind got to them a little bit. I thought Steven Johnson looked kind of banged up. The defense didn't have the same kind of energy that they had earlier in the season, but they got to seven wins because Benny Snell on the offensive line found their way and, and they kind of reestablished their identity on offense enough that they could, they could up it from five to seven wins again. Yeah. For me, the season kind of breaks down in three parts. You had the first month of the season and they really had offensive line issues that I really didn't think the staff envisioned. I thought they believe that either Haynes or Stallings could step in and really man that center position and play at a pretty high level. And just with the snapping issues, that didn't work out. Then you had Haynes' diabetes and the weight loss really rear its ugly head. And it's just an unfortunate set of circumstances there. And then with Bunchy, 
he gets injured in that Southern Miss game, and then they kind of had a revolving door at center there until they eventually put Drake Jackson in in the second part of the season. But then it all comes down to that Florida game. I think a lot of people didn't – a lot of fans, I don't think, really expected to win at South Carolina again. And they really kind of won in a dominating fashion. Their offensive line – I mean, they really just beat up South Carolina, I think, physically at the line of scrimmage. And then defensively, they played great run defense at that, at that point in the season. And South Carolina got some stuff in the passing game. But a lot of it was on that big play from Debo Samuel at the beginning of the game. And then after that, some of it came you know, in kind of a little bit of garbage time with Bentley. And then, of course, they had that big goal line stand. So I think fans were set up like, okay, we got a really good defense. If we can just get our offense figured out. And so you go into that Florida game, and everything is on the table. And we've seen this in the Stoops era multiple times. You had 2015 Florida and Auburn. The crowd is all in. They come up short in one-possession games, both of those. Last year, you had Georgia coming into town, first weekend in November. It's set up if you could beat Georgia and Tennessee, and if Florida would lose a game or two, you could have won the East there. So the fans are talking about that. They're all jacked up. You lose that game on a last-second field goal. Then Florida comes into town. So this is the fourth game in three years where the crowd is just dying to get a big home win. In, in any rebuild coaches will tell you the thing you have to do is win big home games. And that's just, I think, part of the frustration with the fans is this, is that they can't, they haven't got the big home win. So I think that just brought the air out of the sails for the team when you lose the game like you did against Florida. And then the second part of the schedule, you had some winnable games there, but you you lost to a Mississippi State team that was clear that was a lot better than you. It's a top 20 caliber team. Probably, top, I thought, a top 15 team when Nick Fitzgerald was healthy. And then you dropped the Ole Miss game, a game that was winnable and a game that would have set you up for a chance at a nine-win season. And a game, if you win, you get your first winning uh, conference record in, who knows, since the 70s. And then, the, of course, the last part of the season, they bounced back and beat Vandy, but then they dropped the two. Georgia was understandable. I thought they played decently well in that Georgia game, just missed some opportunities and just kind of laid down in the Louisville game. So, I mean, that was my thoughts on that season. I think what really hurt them was that, I mean, obviously looking back at Florida loss, I think that that really uh, rubbed the fan base the wrong way, expectedly. Eventually, you're going to have to win some of these big games at home. And then, you know, they then you lose like Mississippi State, like you lose, like, like you lose to them, and then you drop that Ole Miss game, and then you get, you know, toasted in the last two games. I think that, you know, a big sour taste in the fans' mouth. And – why I understand why fans would think it was a disappointing season. Yeah, I get that, um, and I'm right with you on every single one of those points. I would I would add I think that just two of those two of those games two of those moments account for all of the negativity. I think the Florida game missing that opportunity to break that streak at home was was such a gut punch. And it was it, it was compounded as the season went on and Florida's true colors came out and people saw, you know, this really is not they had no business losing to this team. Not only were they just not very good, this was a program that had the wheels coming off. And so that loss reinforced a lot of the old stereotypes about Kentucky football and and for some people, even Kentucky had won eight or nine games, they probably wouldn't have been thrilled with the season just because of the Florida streak and the way that it hangs over this program like a black cloud. And then I think I think fans 
would have been okay even getting blown out by Mississippi State, even getting blown out by Georgia, even with the last-minute touchdown loss to, to Mississippi. But I think getting blown out by Louisville compounded with realizing how poor Florida was as a team. Louisville and Florida, I thought, were the two games that account for, for pretty much all of the negativity. Yeah, I could see that. And I think it all comes back to the, these home games – the best win Stoops has had at Kentucky have been on the road. You look at the Louisville game last year and the two South Carolina wins. You could argue that those are the biggest, his three biggest wins. And eventually, you got to cash in at home. Um, the fans go there to pay the money to see those home games. Uh, they want to see a big win, and he really just hasn't got that since they beat South Carolina in 2014. Yep. I think you're right about that. I mean, we should we should pay more attention to that performance that they had on the road there in Columbia because it's easy to get hung up on the losses, but that was an outstanding win. As bad as the Florida loss was in hindsight, that South Carolina win turned out to be a, a really good one. You know, like you said, they kind of controlled, controlled the line of scrimmage. They rushed for 180-something yards, but I think that was maybe a little bit misleading because I think a big chunk of that was Steven Johnson's long run there at the end of the game, if I'm not mistaken. But they ran when they needed to run it, which is a little bit surprising because the offensive line was still struggling at that time. And just as an aside, on the offensive line struggles, you know, Bunchy had a really tough offseason. You know, his mother passed, and I'm not saying that the two are related, but he played played really emotionally early in the season. I don't know how many people noticed that, but he drew a couple of penalties, a couple of flags. He, He seemed like he was, he was on edge a little bit. And I'm just, he never seemed comfortable on the field when he was at center, but as bad as the Florida loss looked in hindsight, South Carolina win, you know, looked, looked much better as the season went on and they won six out of their, their last eight games. Um, you know, all in all, my, my frustration it, with, with some of the hot takes from this season is, is when somebody says this team should have been nine and three. Well, I get that. Based on being seven and five, they could have beaten Florida and they could have beaten Ole Miss. Sure, that they, they could have been nine and three given that. But I, you you look at the advanced numbers, Adam, more than me, more than anybody that that you know I pretty much come across. This was not a nine win Kentucky team. As much no. as they could have beaten Florida and Ole Miss, they were fortunate to win some of the games that they, they won. And, and some of that was just the way that they're kind of designed, the way that they're built to be a ball control run heavy, execute the special teams game really well. They're going to win some of those close games, did a good job of that. But but this was not a 9-3 and three football team if you watched them from the start of the season to the end. Yeah, if you just look at the advanced stats, I mean, they were in the 80s per S&P Plus. So if you're looking just at that, if you're an outsider looking in, looking into the program, you're like, man, Kentucky was really a – kind of a 5-7 and seven team that got the seven wins. Now, when you actually watch the games and see it, you can see how they won these games. But all you have to do is look at the against-the-spread record. Kentucky, I believe, was 3-9 and nine in, uh, against Vegas. So whenever they were winning, they weren't covering. And whenever they lost, they were getting blown out or getting lost like they, people expected them to. And I think it comes down to the offense really did not have any burst ability. The passing game, especially when Johnson got a little banged up at the end of the season, it was all 10 yards and in. It was all short targets. And then Snell is awesome. He's the best back to ever run here at Kentucky. But he's not giving you chunk plays. If he's giving you one, it's 20, 25 yards. But what he's hurting you, he's he's death by paper cuts. You get five, he gets six, he gets seven, he gets four, he gets three, he gets nine. 
So they really missed that burst ability. Their best big play option on offense was really Conrad on the RPO. And I think that that really hurt this, this offense. That they, to, for them to score, they had to go on 12-play drives. And that's why I think you saw their red zone numbers. They got their red zone a lot, and they scored a bunch, but they only scored touchdowns around 60% of the time. And I think it was really because they couldn't get, get big plays from outside to get a touchdown. They would get in the red zone and really struggle. And so that combined with, I think, we're going to get into this a little bit later when we, when we bring up some recruiting, but the defensive line up front, I think they, at the beginning of the season, I think they played really well. But I think you saw a lot of young players get kind of worn out and tired. And I think that especially took a big toll on Josh Allen and Denzel Ware. I think those guys played at a really high level um, at, at times this year, but at other times you could tell, I, I, could, I could tell it looked like that they were really tired and, they had to carry a big load, and then they weren't getting really any help inside. Those guys are playing a lot of snaps. You know, I was I was listening to another podcast, this solid verbal podcast, kind of looks at college football from from a national lens. And going into the Georgia game, they actually talked about Kentucky one one week this year. They talked about Kentucky going into the Georgia game because there weren't that was a very bad week for college yeah. football. I want to say, and they 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 kind of said in passing. What do you think about Kentucky? And one of them, one of them said, "Well, they're seven, they're seven and three, but they're kind of hoping that nobody looks really deep into the numbers. They're seven and three and hoping nobody looks at the schedule that they've played." And I think that that was a legitimate point. You know, in the in the big picture, um, the schedule was very was very beneficial to this team. I, I, there are people that have said that the schedule was horrible. The schedule wasn't horrible. There aren't that many teams in the country that play a real murderer's road schedule. Most teams have, have manageable stretch of the schedule. And it wasn't as good a schedule as I think some people made it out to be. But I think, I, I've said before, if you were to like throw all of the SEC schedules from the last 20 years into a hat and you were to shake it up and reach in and pick it out, if you drew this one, you would be jumping around, you would be jumping up and down, running around the room ecstatic, you know? Um, so is this a seven and five team most other years uh, in the SEC, no, I don't think so. But this is the schedule that they had. Um, I think there are some re- some reasons for optimism going forward. I mean, the offensive line definitely got back on track as the season went on. Benny Snell, I thought Snell started the season just okay. He didn't look like Benny Snell from last year early in the yeah, season. I think, I think he was trying too hard, Justin, personally. And you heard Grant talk about that. His patience wasn't there. I think he was so jacked up to be the number one back, and I think he really thought in his mind he was going to go out and run for 2,000 yards, win SEC Player of the Year. And I think you saw that, and I think you saw him get frustrated because they had to deal with the high snaps and stuff. And I think once he he just, you know, relaxed and took a step back, I think you really saw him kind of take off. I agree. And, and in particular, in that Southern Miss game, he, he didn't really crank it up until the Tennessee game. He had, had some 100-yard games against Eastern Kentucky, and he had like an A.B. George kind of 100-yard game on three yards of carry against South Carolina. And mm-hmm. Missouri, you know, had a poor defense. But but that Southern Miss game, he fumbled near the goal line early in that game, and he missed about three holes in that game after that. And I think that fumble – really affected his confidence in that game, and he didn't run with the same kind of anger and chip on his shoulders that he did until the second half of the season. But he got on track. He's back. The offensive line is back. So they got a good nucleus to build the team around next year. 
We'll talk about the team next year, but the, the, the big question facing the offense is the quarterback play. And that, you know, next year could be a special season because the schedule looks manageable again. But you got a big quarterback question in my mind, and uh, and we'll just see how that plays out. Yeah, we'll get into that quarterback issue now. Uh, as you've reported, Justin, Terry Wilson is visiting this weekend after some kind of, I guess, mix-ups earlier this week. And for those of you that are listening, this is probably going to – we're recording on a Friday evening around 6 o'clock. So if news comes out, this may be a little delayed. But Terry Wilson is on his visit right now along with some other uh, junior college players and I believe an offensive tackle out of Florida. Let's say they land Wilson. Uh, what Do you think he has a legit chance to start? Because I, I personally do. You know, we don't really know what we're going to get from Barker and Hoke. Even Barker, to a certain extent, has a very small sample size. And we saw him start multiple games under Dawson, but we really only saw him play a game and a half in grand system. And then, of course, Hoke, it's even smaller sample size. But I believe with what UK has and what Mark Stoops wants his offense to look like, and I think what people need to realize is the grand offense he ran at Cincinnati – it wasn't like this. They weren't running the ball down people's throats. It was the formations were the same, but it was most it was a balanced attack. But they were more le- they were more kind of pass heavy. They were throwing the ball over the yard. Gunner Kill was putting up some big numbers. I can't miss recruit coming out of high school. We really had kind of a strange situation to end up getting them to Cincinnati. But what they've kind of evolved in, they're running a lot of two three tight sets now. If they're not two three tight sets, they're spreading you out and they're running the ball. So when I see that, that makes me think, okay, kind of like the Rich Rodriguez offense out at Arizona where they spread you out. And if you have a dynamic quarterback that can run the ball with a good running back and a good offensive line, that can really do some damage. And I think Wilson brings a dynamic speed-wise, and I think he could be just a good enough passer that if they, with, if their offensive line is able to play at the level that they played at to close the season – with Snell playing at that level, and you've got that guy on the outside with Wilson that could really hurt a defense. I think he could bring a dynamic that I think really Mark Stoops would like to have in his offense in the future. I agree. And and on Eddie Grant, I looked at the numbers at Cincinnati, I think the four or so years he was there as the offensive coordinator, and I think it, it, never, st- it never veered further than 52-48 run pass either way. I think some years he was 52% pass, some years he was 52% run, but it was right there in the middle. And Kentucky's certainly been a lot more run heavy, which I think is, is about the personnel, not only the strengths of the personnel in terms of Snell and, and the offensive line, but the limitations of the personnel in terms of passing, pass protection, and the lack of really go-to proven receivers. Yeah, I think there are two two paths to Kentucky becoming a better offensive team. You can get a pro-style guy who comes into his own, like Barker maybe, Barker at his best. you got to hope. You know, maybe he could be the guy you saw in the first half against Southern Miss last year before the, the, the back issues flared up. Um, or you could get the dynamic runner like Terry Wilson. And I think that the, the dynamic runner route is the, is the more plausible route for them because I st- even in a best-case scenario, I'm not sure Kentucky has the personnel on offense in terms of pass protection with the offensive line and in terms of the receivers to really be an explosive passing team. I almost think the passing game would be better served if they, if they had a guy like Wilson who, who was just made life very difficult on the defense in that read option game and took that to another level. And he's a, he's a better runner than Steven Johnson. He's yes. a better runner than Jaron Williams would have been. He, he would really test a defense. Now, 
he is limited limited as a passer. I think he's got good upside as a passer, but there are a lot of games when his completion percentage was around 50% or just above it. So people need to temper their expectations on, on, on the throwing level, but he could really he could he could take the run game to the next level. No matter who UK plays next year, they're gonna be seeing eight, nine man boxes, no matter who the quarterback is. So my my theory in that is if you got a guy that can run it like I think Wilson can run it, that's just an extra thing that defenses have to account for. And I think him doing that would open more vertical opportunities for this passing game because you would have to have an eye on Snell at all times, but then you'd, you'd have to creep up a little bit if Wilson has the ability to burn you if he pulls it. And then that's where you could see, you could see, you know, uh, receivers streaking down the middle or streaking down the sideline for some potential big plays. Yeah, I agree, I agree with you there completely. Um, you know, I, I, it's going to be a competition. You know, I honestly would not be shocked if Wilson or Barker or even Hope were the starter next season. I mean, first with Wilson, you got to get him. Right now, Florida is still in the mix. Nebraska is still in the mix. Texas is kind of looming out there. But I think that, you know, with Wilson coming up with his mom and his girlfriend and his sister, you feel good about that. I don't know what to make about the quarterback position right now. You know, I, I could see, but it's going to define the direction that they go. I, I've defended Barker for a long time and said that we we haven't seen the best that he can be because because even when most of the time when he's been playing, he's been put in tough situations. When he first came in in 2015, that was the end of the season. It was cold when it's tough to pass. The wheels had already come off the yeah. offense. It was really a, an impossible situation for him. Then he was hurt last year. You know, the offense was sputtering the times when he came in this year. But my lingering concern with Barker, and there's no sense in in, in sugarcoating it, I, I don't know how he responds to pressure. You yeah. Know, when, yeah. When, when a guy gets in his face, I, I think he kind of gets nearsighted. And he, he doesn't see very far beyond the rush, and things kind of shut down. And I don't know how much another offseason is going to help that. And and so we'll just we'll have to see. But I, I maybe not quite as high on Barker as some other media people have been recently, and that's why I think Wilson is really important. Yeah, in limited playing time, it's Barker was kind of that was a weird situation in 2015 because they had the Dawson, and I think they I don't know for certain, but I think the staff realized about halfway through the season that Dawson was done once the season was over. And so they throw Barker in there in the Vanderbilt game. And he goes down, Kentucky scores a touchdown. First drive. First drive. I believe it's 10-7. He throws a, he throws a couple ropes on that drive. And so, the whole team, when he came in the game, exploded on the sideline. Yeah. I don't it, know whether Tolls had lost the team or Barker had won the team, but you could tell everybody on that sideline, aside from maybe some of the seniors, because there was an older, younger, veteran, young guy split a little bit. Yeah. There, but that team wanted Barker to be the guy at that point. Okay, so then point, it's 10-7. And if you remember, this Vanderbilt offense was horrible. It was really before Ralph Webb got really rolling as like, you know, like a legit – top-notch SEC back, and Kyle Shermer was a true freshman, making, I think, like his second or third career start. And they really just, if you made them go full distance, you know, 60-plus yards, they were likely not to score on you. So the next drive, it's third and 14. Kentucky's up 10-7. It's middle of second quarter, I believe. Freshman quarterback in there. This is when I think it kind of turned on Barker. And it's really, we haven't seen the same since. 
The next drive, they they let Barker throw it when they should have just run a draw and punted. He throws a pick six. And he, I don't believe he came back in the game after that. And so it's Kentucky goes on and, and loses that game and loses bowl eligibility that season. I think if you run a draw right there, I think Kentucky goes on and wins the game eventually. So that that and then the they throw him in the Charlotte game, and like you said, it was freezing cold that game. Kentucky just, I believe they ran for over 400 yards that day. And then the Louisville game, he had that horrible stat line in the second half where I don't think he completed a pass. I think he was like 6 of 22 or something for the game. Yeah, I mean, and it, he, was, it was brutal. And he had four, I think he had three or four completions on that first drive when Kentucky went down and scored a touchdown. Yeah. So he, so he has no confidence at all going into the next season. And he's got a new, he's got his third offensive coordinator in three years. So he's been bounced around like a pinball in all these different schemes. And he goes out, and he plays awesome for that first half. But And then he goes, and he, hurt, he hurts his back. So we don't see him again since then. But what I noticed in that Southern Miss game, which was fun and exciting at the time, when Barker got pressured, like he said, I thought he went back to high school. He went back to where he thought he could scramble around and go get outside of the pocket and make some throws. And he did that a few times and made some exciting plays. But like you saw in the Tennessee game, he did that outside. He got outside the pocket, tried to make something happen. He fumbled. I just don't think he can do that at this level. And I think if Kentucky takes over or lets him start next year, I think it really hurts with the strength of this club. The strength of this club is running the ball from guard, center guard, inside, running in the A and B gaps. But right. if, if Barker is the starter – you have to institute a quick passing game. I think you almost have to be a little bit pass heavy, and you got to do you got to do quick stuff on the outside. And I think if you have Barker in there, I don't think he can really do slow play action type of stuff that you would like to do with Snell. I think it would hurt Snell, and I think you'd have to run a lot of four wide sets with Barker. That's why I think you'd be best off with Wilson and maybe even Hoke because I think Hoke. It's got a little bit more mobility. I think we don't really know for sure, but I think he he seems a little bit more calm. But the only thing I have with Hoke is he's a real quiet kid, and I don't know if he can really you know be the leader and demand you know get seniors to really buy into him as being the guy the, the leader of the team. And Barker could work, but, but Kentucky's offensive line has to get better in pass pro. You know, I, I think it's a, it's a really good offensive line, like you said, running from guard to guard. Um, and, and and even running, you know, outside a little bit, but in terms of pass protection, they're a little bit more limited, and that's why I think the offense would flourish a little bit more with a with a dual threat guy. And, and frankly, moving forward, they're in kind of a, a they're trapped in a little bit of a cycle now because if you look at all the 2019 quarterbacks Inshaw's recruiting ha, has offered, they're almost all pro style quarterbacks. Yeah. You could I I, I I think Darren Henshaw wants an accomplished passer. That's what I was about to say. I think it's a lot of Henshaw. I think he personally wants – I think it kills him not to be able to throw the ball. Um, yeah, I, think he, I agree. I think I agree. he wants to throw the ball around the yard. I think – personally, I think Henshaw's a really good quarterback coach. I think he did a really good job at Cincinnati um, developing those two quarterbacks they had. But the ones they had, Brendan Kay and Gunnar Keel and even Hayden Moore, they were all pocket passers. But uh, Kentucky just hasn't had that. Uh, we didn't really get to see it with Barker. And they kind of just had to make a make a makeshift offense on the run. And what's happened with that offense? Uh, they found a superstar in Benny Snell. So now they, you know, and I think Stoops in that and the scene in the way they recruited offensive linemen. I think they want to become like a Big Ten offense. They want to 
be physical. They want to play with some big tight ends, and they want to run the ball, and then they want to play play action. I just think a, a true dual threat like Wilson could add a really interesting dynamic. It's going to be hard to get a really good pro-style quarterback given the cycle that they're in now because even if they want to pass the ball more, every time they throw somebody out there in the Wildcat formation, every quarterback that they're recruiting kind of takes a mental note. It's like, okay, that's quarterbacks coming out of the game. And every time Benny Snell runs it 25 times and they you know, pass for 100, 150 yards, that's one of the reasons they lost Jaron Williams, frankly. They, they, they thought the offense was going to expand more this year and they were not happy with the direction of the offense. But – you know, we'll, we'll see how it plays out. Um, I, I think this this coming year, I think we're probably on the same page. If Terry Terry Wilson commits to Kentucky and ends up at Kentucky, you give him another semester. He's been at Oregon. He's been around the big-time college football program. He's not about the flash and the glam anymore. He's about starting and, and, and making his name known. I, I, think he, um, I think he would be a good bet for him. But the offense would still be limited, but they would take it to another level in terms of the run game. Yeah, the best their best chance to be dynamic next year is with Wilson, I believe, just because they've got a fifteen hundred yard caliber back, and then if they can get if they can get you know just six hundred from Wilson, and if they can have just another running back step up to give them a little something a little more than King did, you're looking like at an offense that could potentially be the best rushing attack in the SEC. That's right, and you know, Stephen Johnson. Um, He's obviously gotten the credit that he's due. You know, I think he's finally he, he was finally appreciated for his good qualities, but he was he really struggled over the second half of the schedule. And mm-hmm. yeah, we shouldn't. I don't know how much of that was being banged up or what, but it's worth noting that you know part of the reason for Kentucky's struggles on the back half were his inefficiencies as a quarterback and his limitations as a quarterback. I don't know if he had a lower body injury or something. I somebody close to me told me that he didn't have anything that, that would require surgery after the season, but he was definitely less than 100%. He had been on a boot. He had missed a little bit of practice time. Um, and if he had a lower body injury, that would account for some of the some of the missed accuracy. But, you know, that was a big part of their struggles as well. They just could not. And, you know, Kentucky really hasn't been able to pass the ball consistently since about 2010. I mean, yeah, this is a program, yeah. a program problem. I ran the numbers about three, three games ago, and it was something like, 34 touchdown passes in their last 46 SEC games. I mean, that's just amazing, amazing to me in this day and age. Um, but it's also a testament to how good Pink Snell is because he's kept him afloat during a lot of that. Since Stoops took over, the most touchdown passes, I believe one quarterback or even as a team they've had in the season is 14. Yeah. I, mean, the high, I, I want to say the highest rated passer in, uh, in the Mark Stoops era is still Maxwell Smith. Back in the uh, in the 2013 season, if I'm not mistaken, if, if that because of Stephen Johnson's regression there at the end of the season, I'm looking right now. Yep, by 0. .02 points, Stephen Johnson higher or Stephen Johnson lower rated than Maxwell Smith. And I, <laughs> rewind to 2013, I definitely wouldn't have pegged Max Smith as. Uh, but that's a little bit of a testament to Neil Brown as well, and he's he's shown that he's more he, he's probably more than he ever got credit for at Kentucky. When Neil Brown talked, he sounded like a big time college football coach. Now, Troy is a program, you know, they're, they're one of the top programs in the Sun Belt. They're supposed to win conference titles, but you, you, you coach at any group of five school and you go and win at LSU, um, you've got a pretty good guy wearing the headset on the sideline. Before we get too deep on other topics, you know, one of the things that, that we said we were going to talk about was what, what went wrong this year. We haven't really talked about the defense yet. And 
everybody asked me week after week on social media on the website, why did the defense not get better when they returned virtually everybody? You know, losing we can say losing Toth and losing Boom, okay, we didn't account for that. That explains a lot of the offense's inability to take it to the next level. But I don't have any answers for the defense. I really don't know why they didn't get better. I mean, they, they pressured the quarterback better. They had more sacks, but that was, frankly, a little bit skewed by the Tennessee game. They had one-fourth of their sacks on the season in that one game. I don't know why the defense didn't get better. I mean, do you have any theories on that? Okay, last year, Kentucky got gashed on the ground. They were last in the SEC. I think they gave up over 215 yards rushing. So I think when – and Elliott leaves for Colorado. Matt House takes over the defense. Mark Stoops gives over play calling duties to Matt House. I think they made a goal. They said, we're not letting teams run on us this year. Whatever we do, we're going to stop the run. And at the beginning of the season, they they did well at that. Southern Miss and Ito Smith. Ito Smith ended up finishing in the top 20 in the FBS in rushing yards. He had one of his worst games career-wise against U.K., they go to South Carolina. They really shut down. South Carolina didn't really have much at the end of the season that we realized, but a lot of people thought Rico Dattle was going to be a really good back this year. They shut him down in that rushing attack down. So when I think what happened was they focused so much on the offseason on stopping the run, I think that really hurt their pass defense. And I think they really never – I think the safety position really hurt them. And then I think what happened is I think they – in the first part of the season, they were rotating defensive linemen. You saw guys like Cordell Looney, um, Matt Elam, Calvin Taylor. Um, the list goes on and on. A guy's getting a lot of snaps. And I think at the end of the day, they couldn't get tackles for loss. And I think as the season got on, they wore out, and teams were just getting six, seven yards, six yards. And I, didn't, I think at the end of the season, they were just dog-tired and then at that time, they got a defense that can't stop the run and can't stop the pass. And Jordan Jones not playing at his level that he did last year really, really hurt the team. I think they were expecting an all-conference linebacker at that position that would give them, you know, 10, 11, 12 tackles for loss, somewhere near 100 tackles. And really, he got injured early, and he was really – he wasn't the same player all season, I don't, I don't believe. And I think that's really what hurt them, I think – the lack of being able to create negative plays, and then they they forced uh, 18 turnovers. But Kentucky is a team, talent-wise, I think that, that that's never going to be good enough. They, they've got to force 20-plus turnovers, and they've got to be good in the red zone. And they were awful in the red zone, and they just didn't force enough turnovers. So, I mean, really in a nutshell, I think it was your defensive line, you had a rotation early, but – Guys weren't making an impact, and you had to smaller down that rotation, and you really couldn't get negative plays. So teams were if they got if teams got any push at all, they were running it all over you. And then in the secondary, they've got bad play from the safety, and their pass defense really struggled. So I think it was a combination of things, but it all goes down to Kentucky. No matter what happens from a talent standpoint, in my eyes, they're going to give up yards. Even with Brooks and his good teams, they really never stopped anybody like were a stout defense, even though they had guys like Corey Peters and Myron Pryor on the inside, what they did was force turnovers and get stops in the red zone. That's what you have to do at Kentucky, and that's something I don't think they did this year. And, you know, if, if you look at the, the competition they faced, it, it pretty well reflected in terms of, of the level they played on defense. I'm, I'm pulling up their third down conversion defense right now. Okay, so – 
they allowed 50% conversions to Georgia, 55% conversions to Louisville, 67% conversions to Mississippi State, 47% conversions to Missouri, 46 to Ole Miss. So against the five best offenses that they faced this year, they didn't stop the opponent on third down yeah. better than 46% of the time. So they were bad against the five really legitimate offenses that they face. Now, yeah. I think some of that was wearing down because the defense really deteriorated in the, in the second half of the Missouri game. And that's when the light came on for Missouri, as you pointed out to me earlier this year. Um, and they hadn't had a bye week to that point in the season either. Um, but it, I think it was clear by the end of the season that they're, they're just weak up the middle. I mean, Bohanna had a good season at the, at the nose for a true freshman, but Pringle and Elam, the two seniors, weren't playing at all. Yeah, especially and, Pringle because I thought yeah. he played pretty well last year, and I think that was – he. You could him and um, Adrian Middleton. I think you could make an argument that outside of maybe Jones, they were the most disappointing uh, players on the defense. Because I would, e- I would, I would even throw T.J. Carter in a little bit, although he did have some bright spots. Because I kind of anticipated he he would have a, a breakout year, kind of like Middleton. But also, you pointed this out. I, Josh Allen was a second team All SEC pick, but I think if I think that's frankly a little bit generous if you look at how he played the second half of the season. I thought Mike Edwards was 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 probably a better choice for a second team All SEC defensive player for Kentucky. Um, but but you know they they faced some good quarterbacks. I mean some some of this was the teams that they faced. I mean Ole Miss, you know they they had the the junior college quarterback. I'm not going to pronounce his name. Mississippi State Fitzgerald hadn't been hurt. Fromm played. Fromm wasn't great against him, but he did what he had to do. And then Lamar Jackson. I think you're right. Darius West was solid against the run this year, but he had he showed real limitations in coverage. And he missed a lot of tackles. I mean, he missed he missed a lot of tackles. And it opens the question for me: Do they have the personnel to run the three four? And I think the reason they're running the three four is because they thought it was hard to recruit the personnel to run the four three. Yeah. And I'm just not sure that it's it that the three four is the better bet for them going forward because if you look at the havoc stats like you do. They don't get virtually anything. They don't. They're, they're terrible. I mean, they don't. Teams get when you don't do that, and teams can just get four or five yards of carry. Like the games you talked about, where they gave up over fifty percent conversions. Outside of Ole Miss, all those teams ran for over two hundred yards and averaged at least five point nine yards per carry. Tackles for loss: two against Louisville, yeah. one against Georgia, two against Missouri, three for Ole Miss. I mean, if you're not getting six. Six or more tackles a loss per game. You, you, that's not SEC level, you know. So uh, they they're not getting enough havoc from their defensive line, and that's schematic. You can say, okay, well the linebackers are getting more than their share, but their linebackers are not elite enough to make up for not getting anything in front of them. Yeah, I think when they made this move to the three four, I think they saw they thought I don't think they ever I don't think the staff thought Elam was ever going to be a superstar. I thought they thought he was going to be a really good player. But I think they thought Tamir DeBose was going to be outstanding. And I think the thought was that those two were going to anchor inside and I think Stoops on the recruiting trail saw he could get a lot of outside linebackers and he could really load up in that position and then they would just need less defensive linemen. But what has happened was Elam and DeBose, that 2014 class, you really got nothing out of that um, from that defensive line standpoint. And so that really puts you in a hole. And they've gotten some good junior college players. I think 
most of their junior college defensive linemen, even Pringle his junior year, I think he outplayed how people thought he would. Corey Johnson yeah. was really good. The Courtney Miggins was, you know, serviceable. I mean, he wasn't he as was, good. He might have been their best defensive lineman coming into the season. Yeah. But, you know. So they've gotten I good. They a little bit more of a project. but yeah. and, and part of the problem with the defensive line has been the attrition. You know, Tubman and Hatcher with his hand in the dirt mm-hmm. a little bit. But, but those junior college guys, they had to recruit to plug holes early right away because they were in such a bad situation. They created this revolving door where you're not building the depth with get with guys two three years in a program before you're putting them on the field. So so it's been a vicious cycle for the defensive line as well. I do think that they return more on the defensive line than people think. Yeah, I think when people look at their recruiting and they say, okay, we only got Davion Hawkins, this is a crisis. I don't think it's necessarily a crisis. I do think that the defensive line is going to get better. Between Middleton, between Carter, Cordell Looney, I think Phil Hoskins has a very bright future. And, and people are really high on Jordan Wright. I think Bohanna, Pascal, they, they got potential on the defensive line. But I just think they would be better served moving to a 4-3 defense. I don't know how serious Stoops was when he talked about it. We'll just have to see. I don't think it's in the cards this year because two of your best defensive players, assuming – um, they all come back are going to be your two outside linebackers. And I just don't know if you moved to where to a full four-down look that he could hold up. But moving forward, you got – I really think they got three really, really good players in Bohanna, Jordan Wright, who redshirted this year, and Joshua Pascal. And if you look at their builds, they're built – Pascal and Wright are built to be they, – that they could be 4-3 defensive ends. And then if you tag them with Bohanna, then you only got one more spot to fill. Um, and hope maybe you can develop a Cordell Looney. Maybe you can get another Juco. Or maybe that Hawkins kid, maybe he could play inside or, and they could develop him. I think that move's coming eventually, but I don't think it's going to happen this year. It's just Kentucky's just, even in their past, Brooks tried to run a 3-4. They've really never had any success with it. And if you don't have the dudes like right up the middle, like you said, you got to have a straight up alpha at middle linebacker. And Love was good, but he nobody's going to mistake him for being one of the better linebackers in the SEC. No, what I really liked from the defense early in the season, aside from the rush defense, top ten the first several weeks of the season, I like their third down personnel and third medium, third and long situation. When you put Middleton and Looney and Josh Paschal on the line, they, they were really good early in the season at getting off the field on third down. Um, some people are going to say, well, the defensive line didn't improve this year. Why should we think the guys next year are going to get any better? I just think I think guys like Bohanna and Paschal are a little bit different cats than the guys that they've had. Those mm-hmm. guys have an edge. They, they have an attitude, the right kind of attitude for defensive linemen. I think the young guys that they've got are going to develop better than the guys did from last year to this year. So I'm pretty optimistic about the future of the, of the defensive line. I think they'll improve next year. Up the middle is still the question. You know, Bohanna, promising second year coming up. No depth there. And no. Courtney Love, Courtney Love was, you know, he's kind of beyond criticism because he's such a fantastic guy. But he was he was limited as a middle linebacker, and he, he was the best option they had. So up the middle is going to be a big concern uh, going into next season for the defense. Yeah, and then there's a recruit, I believe, uh, Bryant Pirtle out of Louisville that's on campus yeah. this weekend. And then we saw Xavier Peters make a big jump in the rivals' rankings. I think both of those guys 
uh, could come in and instantly play at middle linebacker. And another guy I really like, that Jamin, uh, Jamin Davis, who redshirted this year. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure exactly of his size, but watching him in the spring game, he was the only linebacker on the field that I thought really popped. I thought he was out there making – you saw him make a bunch of plays – um, I think he's a guy that they may have to find a spot for this year. I was a little bit surprised he didn't play this year. You know, he had the extra semester. He played great in the spring game. Of course, Gunnar Hope played great in spring games for two straight years, and the staff's opinion of him seems to maybe not be quite where a lot of the fan base thinks thinks that it should be. But but Watson played good in the spring game. Davis did. They got, they got a bright future at linebacker as well. Um, you know, the secondary – I think it's moving back to the secondary – I gotta believe they're gonna be better next year. I mean, this—they—they're <laughs> gonna be—it's it, gotta be the most experienced secondary in the country next year. When you figure that their four starters, if Westry and Beatty start at corner, will have had four years of starting experience. Plus Edwards at safety or nickel. Yeah, it, West, if not for um, if if not for the injuries, would have those guys were playing. That was they were four freshmen starting in the secondary at Vanderbilt in 2015. I want to say. So you're gonna be extremely experienced, but that secondary has got to get better. Yeah, speaking of the secondary, how big of a loss do you think Ansley was now that we're a couple years removed from him taking the Alabama job? I think it's a big loss. It was definitely a big loss. I think they they overperformed when he was coaching there, and I think they've definitely underperformed since. Everybody around the program was was really high on him as a coach when he was at Kentucky and he's obviously very smart kind of guy you put in a film room and he's one of the smartest guys in the room. Nick Saban wouldn't have hired him if he wasn't definitely, definitely a big loss, man. It makes me wonder if he would have stayed one year, if Elliot would have left earlier. I think he would be Kentucky defensive coordinator right now. Cause I saw a couple guys um, that roll for Florida state earlier in the season. Now this is just, you know, Twitter scuttlebutt or whatnot, but, they said that Jimbo Fisher was going to, you know, look to target him maybe as the next defensive coordinator um, because they was going to, you know, he was going to have to make staff changes at Tallahassee. I just think he's really well regarded. And I think, it, you know, anytime any coach Saban gets the coach, his secondary has got to really be good because, I mean, Saban is known as being the best secondary in the coach. So if he trusts somebody to coach that, I think uh, you're really getting somebody. And just for example, the, uh, Kirby Smart and Will Muschamp and Jeremy Pruitt all coach secondaries for Saban, and look what they're doing now. So, no, I, you're right. I will say this: if you think back to 2015, that was right around 2014-15. That was right at the end of the SEC's really great run. Those seven championships, 14-15, is when people started to say the SEC has a quarterback problem. And I think, I think, frankly, can. Kentucky did face better quarterbacks this season than they had in some previous seasons, but that does not account for for the regression um, that, that they experienced. Uh, you know, Darius West was a little bit limited in coverage, but he did have some bright spots this year. The bigger issue for me was Beatty, Beatty and Westry. We can attribute some of that to lack of a pass rush. That goes a long way, you know, when, when your secondary is struggling, but um, – I, I thought Western Beatty would be ahead of where they were now. I thought I, maybe we understated some of the some of the losses they had in the secondary. Mm-hmm. McLean and Harmon, guys like McLean, Harmon, and McWilson. I mean, McLean was. I think McLean was a four year starter, and I don't think people really even talked about losing him. And Harmon was one of the most, if not the most, versatile player in the secondary. Mm-hmm. And and so Edwards is playing a lot of the season as that nickel guy. He's forcing all the action back to the middle of the field, and he's just getting getting the crap beat out of him. 
You know, they lost a lot of seniority in that secondary. Even though those guys weren't great players, they they were producers. Yeah, and they all those guys, McWilson, McLean, Harmon, those guys played a lot of football. I mean, they, they took their lumps as young kids, but, I mean, they were – and I think they were guys that Stoops could really depend on, you know, back there. And while they, while they tried to fix the front seven last year. And uh, a point I want to get to, it's one of the issues I've had with Stoops since he's been here is um, – his personnel groupings. I think, I think he, his team. I think the team almost gets confused sometimes, and I think this is what led to those open receivers against Florida. They shuffle on all these. They shuffle on every formation with all these personnel groups, and they try to match perfectly. And I just think sometimes I think simple would be a little bit better with this defense. I think part of their their issues are they try to. You know, play. It's like they try to play chess too much when checkers is necessary. When only checkers is necessary. I don't love all the shuffling he does, um, especially uh, you know, it's in third down situations like he brought up. I think that's a big concern moving forward, and that's why I think a four three would be a, a you know a little better move because I think it would just be a little more simpler for all the players involved, or maybe even just sticking in a four two five base uh, most of the time. It, do, it does. It does create some confusion. I noticed in Louisville games several times when they would motion somebody, they would motion somebody out. Just nobody would pick them up. Guys would just be lost, and you'd have two receivers and one defensive back. And you know that, that was a recurring problem, not just with the wide open receivers against Florida. I, those, those wide open receivers against Florida are going to be probably what <laughs> what a lot of fans remember from this season, and that's unfortunate because mm-hmm. it's extremely fluky. I mean, yeah. even if Mark Stoops were the worst coach in the country, I mean, even if he were like John Brady for football, you know, he um, even the worst coach in the country, that would be a fluke for him. But, you know, it, it is kind of explained. The first one, Justin, like, Florida comes out of the huddle and Beatty just doesn't see that they had a receiver. You see, yeah. if you go back and watch that first one, Beatty is next. He's out. He's additionally playing like an extra linebacker because he thought they had, didn't have a receiver to that side and they were he was coming in for run support. And he doesn't. He just doesn't see him until it's too, and then until the, they snap the ball. So that one, uh, I can't really fault Stoops for that. But the second one, he's got. You know, you got to see that call timeout. But yeah, many other ways they could have won that game too. You know, it didn't just come down to those two things. But those are the those are the two things that are going to stand out. The Florida loss, along with a little the loss, very defining in terms of the way that, that a lot of fans look at the season. But I, you know, looking ahead to the bowl game, really briefly. I think the bowl game is is much more important this season than it was last season. I think just getting there last year was very important for Stoops, for the program, for their recruiting. And and when they got the Georgia Tech draw, that was really tough in terms of the bowl game as being a building moment because you're just so focused on something so unconventional. I think the way they lost the Louisville game this year, the way they lost the Georgia game, the way that they played at the end of the season, it would be very deflating if they – came out and found themselves down 20 to 3 to Northwestern like they were to Georgia Tech in the tax layer. But I don't say they got to beat Northwestern, but they can't be the team that they were the last two weeks of the regular season. I think they need to play well. Last year was a party for both the fans and the team. Last year it was the first Florida Bowl in nearly two decades. It was a you know, it broke the bowl streak. Uh, everybody it was coming off the, the biggest win in the the program has had uh, since the 2000, probably the 2000, probably 2009 season, I say beating Georgia was a big deal on the road. 
um, and beating Auburn on the road. Both of those combined were two pretty big wins, but just from a, a ranked opponent, as high as they were ranked, it was the biggest one since 2007. This one, last, so last one was a play trip. This is this one's a business trip. Fans are the fans are ticked off. It's not going to be a great crowd. I don't feel like um, they're competing with the basketball game, and they're playing a good team. And I think this is a game that they, the coaching staff, I think they really want to win this one because they need some positive momentum going into the next season. We haven't even talked about Northwestern. We can talk more about yeah. them in another episode. But but I will say this: even though Northwestern's won seven games in a row, and they've been really dominant at times recently. They're going to get all the praise that they deserve, and they are a really good team. That's why the line is what it is. If you look at those advanced numbers again, mm-hmm. one thing that I found is there is not a team ranked lower than Northwestern in the S&P rankings that has a better record than them or as good a record as, as them, which means North, as, as fortunate as Kentucky was to win some of those seven games statistically – Northwestern is also pretty fortunate to be nine and three. They've won. And, and they've won all their coin flip games. They've seen every time it's a close game that they're winning. The the losses they have have, have occurred in a pretty much blowout fashion. Yeah, and, and Kentucky's schedule was backloaded. Northwestern's schedule was definitely front loaded, and that that was a big part of that. Now, now the tricky part for Kentucky is their formula for winning has been let's get to the fourth quarter, and. The offensive line will bear down, and Benny Snell will drag us to the goal line, and we'll rely on a strong kicking game. But, you know, against Northwestern, that's kind of a crapshoot because the thing that keeps coming back to me with this Northwestern team is this is a team that finishes. They finish drives with points. They finish games. I mean, they, they, they just finish, finish, finish. And so even if Kentucky gets to a close game in the fourth quarter, it's going to be tough. Personally, I think I love – watching Northwestern because I think Pat Fitzgerald does more uh, with less, maybe more than any coach in the country. And the games are ugly, but they just, they just find ways to win. And year in and year out, they're, you know, they're going to big bowl games. And you're like, well, how the hell is he doing this at Northwestern? I think he's one of the better coaches in the country. He's just at Northwestern and no one, you know. Adam, Adam, you know, one thing, I've covered a lot of teams recruiting-wise across the country, Boston College and some other places that are similar to Northwestern. I think one of the things is the kind of guys Northwestern recruits are guys that have their stuff together. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't you don't get into Northwestern. It's kind of the Stanford kind of, model. Right, yeah. You, you hit on a higher clip of your guys if you're recruiting dudes with 3.5 GPAs and, and guys that can live in Chicago without getting into trouble. And, uh, yeah, there are some definite drawbacks. Northwestern is never going to get their foot in the door with some guys that that the top Big Ten schools are going to get. But the flip side to that is they're going to get guys that are very mature and guys that are going to maximize their potential. So there are drawbacks, but you do get a pool of players that come with some some benefits, too. Yeah, and like you said, we'll get into Northwestern more as – the things go on as we get into later podcasts, we get towards the end of the December. But one thing I want to get to you, Justin, and then uh, we're going to get into some national stuff to end the pod, but Mark Stoops has said coaching changes are coming. Lamar Thomas and Steve Klinkscale are entering their last year of their contracts. And it's been rumored that uh, Miami's receivers coach may be heading up to Florida State to coach for Taggart. So there could be an opening um, I don't know this for that he that Rick would be even interested in Lamar Thomas, but I I feel like that would be a place that he would love to go back home and be receivers coach. So that may be an option for him. 
extra assistant as well. And Mark Stoops has already said it's going to go on the defensive side of the ball. Um, what are your what's your prognosis for how that that gets addressed uh, this offseason? I thought the receivers played better at times than I thought that they would going into the season. You know, they haven't had a great go-to receiver since, you know, I don't know, Charles Matthews. I thought that they, they, they didn't have as many drops as they normally have in recent seasons. I thought that Bowden improved over the year. I thought Garrett Johnson did some good things. I thought Taven Richardson took a step forward. It wasn't great, but I think Lamar Thomas's group did enough that he's a guy that you could that you could certainly justify bringing back. Um, I'm a little bit surprised that he hasn't brought in more top tier recruits from Florida. Although it's it's not always you know just the lead recruiter doing it. Sometimes you know a secondary guy plays a role there. Clink scale, we're just gonna have to wait and see. You know I, he's obviously recruited well in Michigan, but a lot of people are unhappy with the progress or the lack thereof of the secondary. And if you were to uh, if you were to say to me who is the least likely member of the staff to come back, you know, barring somebody taking another job that would be considered a step up, like Eddie Grant getting an offensive coordinator or head coaching job somewhere, I would say, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen with Clink Scale next year. I mean, can you really go into next season without saying we're going to address the secondary in a significant way? I don't know. I think that that's a tough question. With Lamar Thomas, it's really been a surprise on two areas for me. He's been a better coach than I thought he'd be. I think the receivers are remarkably better, but he hasn't made the impact on the recruiting trail. Right. And when you look what he did at Louisville, he landed Lamar Jackson and Des Fitzpatrick. Lamar, a Heisman winner, and Des Fitzpatrick is going to be an all-conference receiver the next two years at Louisville, next two to three years. And he hasn't done that at Kentucky. And when Kentucky got him, I think the fans' expectations were – this guy's going to get us some ballplayers from South Florida, and he hasn't done that. So I understand the frustration there. And then I think it's kind of gotten undersold. Clink scale, I think, and if you look at this next recruiting class, I think you could make – I think personally two of the best five players are uh, Marquan McCall and DeAndre Square. And both of those are clink scale recruits. So he's done a good job there, but there's no hiding the fact that that, that Chris Westry – and Derek Beatty have gotten worse since he arrived here. And at the end of the day, you had you got two guys that a bunch of people thought were NFL players, and now they look like they look like two of the like maybe the worst corner tandem in the SEC. Yeah, it's a tough question. When you lay it out like that, it's kind of interesting. Lamar Thomas came in. A lot of people say there was a Louisville media person who said he's just a recruiter. And he's probably done more as a coach than as a recruiter, whereas when Klinkscale came in, nobody knew what to expect as a recruiter, but they were kind of hopeful that Mark Stoops knew his resume as a coach, and he's probably done more as a recruiter than a coach. So maybe the reverse in both situations. Maybe if they bring in another assistant coach on the defensive side, like Stoops has said, that has a background with the secondary, you can justify bringing him back and, and you know and, and making it work that way. But, I, you know, the coaching carousel affects almost every school, almost every year. Mm-hmm. They're 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 almost surely going to be some defections. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if a couple of guys left either by Stoops' request or by their own opportunity. But we'll just have to wait and see because there's a ton of moving parts. Yes, absolutely. Um, we'll move on and we'll get into some national headlines. Uh, I want to talk about the coaching carousel. It's been crazy. Of course, all the stuff at Tennessee. 
But something interesting for this Kentucky defense next year, they're going to face a lot of schools with a first-time play caller on offense. you got Dan Mullen at Florida. You're going to have a brand-new coordinator at Tennessee. Will Muschamp just fired his offensive coordinator. Missouri's offensive coordinator just took the job at UCF. Jimbo Fisher at Texas A&M. Joe Moorhead at Mississippi State. So I think that's an interesting dynamic entering that season if Kentucky can maybe have the upper hand with their defense with going against all these brand-new coordinators or brand-new play callers at their schools. Yeah. Um, it's going to be really interesting in that first the first year for some of these schools. I think Missouri's offense is going to be okay. Um, just the way that they're trending, you know, I don't – I don't know. It, it all depends on what Locke does. If he goes pro, yeah, if he that's stays. what I'm saying. I don't know what I don't know what his decision to be. If he comes back, I think they'll be able to withstand Heifel leaving. I was frankly a little bit surprised that he got that job, but you know, I, I, whatever. Um, Moorhead at Mississippi State. I wasn't really high on this hire at first, but the more I think about it, I think he can win right away at Mississippi State because he's clearly respected as an X's and O's coach. And he's going to have a really good quarterback coming back. The mm-hmm. question for me with Moorhead is not next year. I think he'll be fine next year. It's, you know, Dan, you're never going to recruit like Alabama, Auburn, LSU, Texas A&M, and Mississippi State. Can he find players well as well as Dan Mullen did and develop them as well long term? And I think the jury's out on that. And with Dan Mullen, the reason, I mean, beyond his history at Florida, the reason Dan Mullen is the perfect fit for Florida is other people have said it. If you solve the quarterback situation there, that makes so much of the situation better. And I can't think of somebody better to fix the quarterback situation at Florida than Dan Mullen. I mean, Dak Prescott, Nick, Nick Fitzgerald, um, you know, he, he's going to get it done. I don't know if it's going to happen right away, but but he, he's going to be a bear over the next few seasons. Yeah, my thought I thought Mullen, and I thought I'm going to think that in a search, I think he was the best hire Florida could have made. He's exactly what they need. He's He's kind of a jerk. He wears a visor, and he can, he knows how to develop quarterbacks. That's everything Florida wants in a coach. That's right. He's going to score points, and they're going to have a fast, aggressive defense, and he's going to say stuff in the media that's going to piss everybody else off. And that's that's what Florida wants. They don't want a defensive coach. They want a guy that's a jerk and that's going to score points. And so I think he's a perfect fit there. And then on Moorhead, I think he's – I think he's a really good coach, a really good X's and O's guy. But this is a different league he's going to be playing in. And especially in that division, those defensive lines, some of that stuff he likes to do may not may not work. Now, he is very creative. He does some really interesting stuff. But one thing he likes to do is he that offense lives and dies off big plays. And Trace McSorley was one of the best deep ball passers in the country the last two years. That's not something Nick Fitzgerald does well. What Nick Fitzgerald does well is run the ball downhill and then on play action hit you with stuff underneath. If you look at Fitzgerald's passing numbers, they're they're just not very good. He has big accuracy issues. So I'm, I'm interested to see with him in that scheme. And I haven't loved the staff he's brought over lately. I mean, he just hired Bob Shoup. And, I mean, he's an, another Northeast guy. Yeah. Another Northeast guy in Starkville, Mississippi. I don't, I don't quite understand that. Yeah, and in a shoot, and we saw what shoot did at Tennessee, and people want to bring up what he did at Vanderbilt and Penn State, and that he was good at both those places, but maybe that was because of James Franklin. 
we don't we don't know. He goes at Tennessee, and they've had that that run defense they had at Tennessee was, I mean, just pathetic. It was horrible. You saw what they did at the end of last year, and then this year, and they had and they had some studs on that defense last year up at Tennessee. Yeah, Kentucky rushed for 440 yards on them and found a way to lose by, what, 20 points? That but, was probably the first time yeah. I've ever seen anything like that. But I think Moorhead's success at Mississippi State is going to have a lot to do with the staff that he hires. You don't put a, a Northeast guy in Starkville, Mississippi, unless you put together a really good staff with deep ties to that part of the country um, and a pedigree because he's got some experience but not head coaching experience at the FBS level. Um, you know, I, I thought – Mullen was a fantastic hire outside the SEC. You know, the big name programs, I think, have really done done better hiring this year than any other coaching carousel year I can remember in recent history. Frost, I don't know that Frost is going to restore Nebraska's glory, but who else would they have gotten that would have been better than Frost? Chip Kelly at UCLA, phenomenal. Willie Taggart, you can make the case for Florida State. I'm not sure it's going to be a home run, but it was a good hire you know, given the circumstances of Fisher leaving. And then Texas a and I don't think Jimbo Fisher's worth $75 million. If you, you pay a coach $75 million, I think you're basically saying we're buying a couple of national championships, or that should be the expectation. And I'm just not sure that he's proven enough without Jameis Winston to justify that kind of money. But if you're willing to spend the money, then, yeah, you certainly he's, he's, he's the guy you should get. Yeah, well, Texas A&M, they're $75 million. It's not everybody else's $75 million. That's true. That's true. That's a school with a massive endowment. So. And then with Taggart, I'm very interested to see him because he's a real deal on the recruiting trail. He's going to pull in some monster classes down there, and he's going to modernize that offense. They're going to spread it out. They're going to run it. They're going to get an athletic quarterback. And with the running backs that they've always been able to recruit, that offense can really be scary. I mean, that. The complaint down there with Jimbo Fisher was that he was a little too old school um, in that with their athletes, they need to spread it out and run a spread. And that's that's something that really intrigues me is what he, what Taggart could possibly do down there. But we'll talk about the most recent hire was Jeremy Pruitt, Alabama's defensive coordinator, going to Tennessee. To me, um, this guy seems like Greg Schiano with a southern accent. Now, I, he's a better recruiter, and he's worked at some big-time programs – but Pruitt has never been a head coach before, and he comes off as a bit of a hothead. Now, I'm just I'm interested to see how that works out because I think he's either going to be a home run and he's going to be a guy that's really fighting with Georgia and Florida for SEC titles, or he's going to totally flame out. I really don't know which way it's going to go or which way I want to predict it's going to go, but I think that's going to be something really interesting to watch him in Knoxville. Had, had Pruitt been the guy that they targeted from day one, you would have had to say that it was a disappointing hire. I think given as chaotic and as circus-like as it got there, they could have done a lot worse. Uh, I think he's far from a given. I think he comes with significant risk. He comes with a floor that is pretty low. I mean, I could see this flaming out in two or three years with, with circumstances similar to they have right now. Um, that stuff to foresee, but I, I don't know how high the ceiling is. It just comes with a lot of questions, but because the, the, the circumstances there in Knoxville were so bad, you know, going with another Saban protege, I guess I understand. Um, you know, you mentioned Taggart. I wanted to throw this out there. 
Oregon's not of interest to a lot of Kentucky fans, but if you're listening to this, you probably like college football. How devastating is it for Oregon to lose Willie Taggart? I mean, for, for two decades, the two of the programs that you point to as like the models of constancy and stability and, and, and continuity would be like Virginia Tech with Bud Foster and Frank Beamer and, and Oregon with Bellotti and Kelly and Helfrich, you know. And, and now they've had like three coaches in the span of a year. And they're going to lose that recruiting class completely. Doesn't really affect Kentucky, but Oregon went from from having incredible continuity to a team to a program that's basically going to be, you know, scrapping it and starting all over again. I think it sets them a long way back. Yeah, yeah, it really hurt them. They kind of set themselves up for that. Taggart, he only, only ties he had to the West for coaching at Stanford for three years. Right. All, everything he recruited was going to be, you know, in the all his big ties are in the Southeast. So. Whenever that Florida, Florida State, or Miami job came open, he was going to be the top target, and he was going to go. They kind of dodged a bullet that Florida decided on Mullen before him, but then it was just bad luck that it happened so soon. But that's a program that, you know, it's kind of overachieved there for 20-something years. Maybe they're just regressing to the mean. And, and you know, they, they certainly capitalized on a very down Pac-12 North for a long time, a down Pac-12 Aside from UCLA, USC's run, they, they really peaked when USC started going down. But with Washington and Stanford there, he's going to face challenges at Florida State, too. You know, I, <laughs> I think it's far from a given that Taggart wins at the level of Florida State than people think, because that job comes with a lot of expectations. And it's going to be very hard to beat Davo Swinney. It's going to be very hard to beat Dan Mullen. And it's even going to be hard to beat Mark Richt with, a, with, a, with the kind of talent they're bringing in. So... If you put him in a pressure cooker job when he he hasn't stayed any one place too long or proved what, what he's going to sustain it like, a lot of those games that he's going to be expected to win are going to be harder to win for Florida State than it's been in a really long time. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And that program, it's kind of like LSU with Les Miles. He's going to get great players, but at the end he's going to be judged by did he beat Clemson to, and did they win an ACC title? If they don't, the fans are going to be ticked off. That's that's the that's the standard there, and that's what you got to do. But he has been on the hot seat before. People forget he was two and ten and four and eight in his first two years at South Florida, and they started really slow that third year. People thought he was going to get fired, and then they he made some offensive changes and they spread it out and they found Quentin Flowers and Marlon Mack and they took off. But um, so that could help him there when the, the pressure gets heated up. Um, but it was really an interesting carousel search, and it's it's really not done. There's really some more ripple effects that will take place. But at, Justin, as we you know, the bowls were announced this past weekend, including in that was the playoff field. Um, what did you think of their? Did you think the committee got it right? And what do you think of those matchups? Yeah, I, th- I think they got it right. But I think it's unfortunate for the sport. And I'm not an Alabama hater. I'm not a Yankees hater. I don't, I don't hate royalty. Um, I think it's unfortunate for the sport that the less objectionable of two objectionable four-spot resumes was a down Alabama team. Because I think it invites a lot of criticism from outside the region, and it kind of polarizes a sport that's already very polarized by, by region. Um, and to shut out two major conferences, two of the five major conferences to put in an Alabama team. Really, their best accomplishment was beating LSU and Ed Orgeron. Um, I think it's difficult. Um, 
I could not have put Ohio State in at the end of the day just because of the 55-24 loss to Iowa, to say nothing of getting handled by Oklahoma on their home field. Ohio State was outclassed. Somebody said this to me on Twitter. Ohio State was outclassed twice this year. I'm not sure it's in Alabama's DNA to be outclassed at any point with Nick Saban as the coach. So, you know, there's really no risk of Alabama losing 31 to nothing to Clemson, whereas it wouldn't shock anybody if Ohio State had done that. So I think they got the field right. But I think it's like split four ways, 25% chance any of these four teams winning it. I thought that Oklahoma would win it, but the more I think about it, I mean, Oklahoma might have to beat – they're going to have to beat Georgia and then either Alabama or Clemson. And Oklahoma was built to win the Big 12. They were not built to beat a team like Georgia that's going to pound you between the tackles like that. And that's why Georgia opened as a favorite in that game. Yeah, but if Oklahoma gets out to a 14-3 lead in the middle of the second quarter – It's then, very difficult. And then, and then you're looking happen. at Fromm and Oklahoma's that um, – Okuranku, and they got a couple other pass rushers that can really get after you. I just think Mayfield puts so much pressure on opposing defenses because he's so good. good. Yeah, that offensive line is really good. I I'm going to amend my pick, and I think actually Clemson has the best chance to win it. Yeah, and I'm not enamored with Kelly Bryant. I think he played very good against Miami. I think he completed like 15 passes in a row or something like that. Um, He's been eh, he's been okay this year. But that defense is so good, and um, I think they're going to beat Alabama, and I think I think they're the best team right now. Yeah. Um, on the field, I think what we're seeing with college football is what our complaints have been with college basketball, the selection committee, for years. We've got ADs on that committee that have ties to schools that are big-time players in the decision process. And then you have different committees each year who kind of just make it up as they go. So you don't know year to year what criteria is going to be the most important. And so it's really kind of up in the air. Now this year, I think they got it right. I think they got the four best teams, and I think it's a wide open uh, race. But the reason I like Oklahoma is I think Clemson, Alabama, and Georgia all have some limitations on offense. And I think that Oklahoma offense – it's, I mean, efficiency-wise, Baker Mayfield, his yard, he's going to break an a, a, a FBS record for yards per attempt. I think he's averaging just shy of 11 yards per attempt. That means every time he throws the ball, he's getting a first down. Right. So, yeah, I just think that offense puts a lot on him. I like Riley. I, I think Georgia might actually be the toughest matchup for them um, just because of some of the personnel they have on, in that defensive. I think that, that defensive front seven for Georgia is going to be um, just as good as any that they face. And Georgia's going to have the longest time to prepare for them. But I just like that offense, and I think that at any point in the game, they're either going to put pressure on the opposing offense by building a lead, or they're going to be able to come back at any point because they got the, the Heisman Trophy winner at quarterback. Oklahoma's defense has been vulnerable at times. I want to say Oklahoma State put like 55 points on them or something like that. Um, it's just very hard to tell how, how prepared they are to face, you know, three of the four or five most physical teams in college football uh, going into this playoff. But the reason that I'm leaning Clemson, and I could I could totally go with Oklahoma like you. That's that's kind of where I've leaned, where my head's been at since I saw them beat Ohio State. 
Um, although Ohio State secondary has proved to be suspect, Clemson Clemson is just a big game program now. Like yeah. if you think of the last like five years in college football, I mean we are way past Clemson. Like Clemson is probably the best big game program in college football going. And they just rise to the occasion in those big games. I mean, they lost to a bad Syracuse team that regressed over the season, but Clemson just always rises to the occasion, man. And, and that, that's why I, I, I like them. But I could I could see any of these four teams. I'd be a little bit surprised if Georgia does, even though Jake Fromm has risen to the occasion, rose to the occasion in South Bend, rose to the occasion against Auburn. Um, but like you said, if they get behind, I'm not sure how, mu- how much I would trust that offense to, to make up a difference. Yeah, absolutely. And like Clemson, like you just said, over the past three years, they've got some really, really impressive wins. And that, like the big game thing, I mean, it's big game Dabo. I mean, we used to call Bob Stoops big game Bob, but Dabo has his team in those big games. They're 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 super reliable. But I think we'll go ahead and wrap it up here, Justin. Uh, thanks for doing this with me. We'll have to do it again. And for all you listeners out there, uh, any feedback is positive. Uh, just let us know how we're doing and let us know in the future what what would you like to be addressed on these podcasts. Adam's been a great podcast, man. I really enjoyed it. Could talk football with you all day. And, uh, yeah, just just hit us up on Twitter. Hit us up on the the site. And always, like you said, look forward to feedback. Been a good time. Yes, it has, and we'll do it again. See you later, people.